Great Wednesday to you. Welcome in to a very special middle of the week edition of Sports Court. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening, however, and wherever you may be listening. Tons to dive into today, but before we get started, hopefully you're having a great Wednesday. Looking forward to the back half of the week just as much as I am. And without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing left to do but to dive into today's show. And that's exactly what we are about to do. But first, let me set up today's show and then we'll get started. I have opening thoughts coming up momentarily, followed by my initial reaction to the college football playoff rankings, which were unveiled last night. I'm also going to continue a conversation that I started earlier this week about David Tepper and his decision to fire Frank Reich. And I'm also going to give you my reaction so far to the NBA's in-season tournament as we have approached the knockout stages of said tournament. I'm also going to preview and predict the Thursday night football matchup that's going to take place on tomorrow between the Seattle Seahawks and the Dallas Cowboys. I'm also going to have a conversation about Josh Dobbs. If you've noticed, in the national sports media landscape, there has been a very, very swift change as it pertains to one Josh Dobbs. A few days ago, he was looked at as one of the best stories in the NFL, and now he's looked at as just the guy. We're going to discuss all of that coming up in the middle portion of today's show. I'm also going to react to some comments that Tyreek Hill made about the current edition of the Miami Dolphins, the 2023 version, and the 2019 Kansas City Chiefs, a.k.a. the team that he was on where he won a Super Bowl ring. Mark Cuban selling his majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks. We're going to talk about that. Corey Perry has been waived by the Chicago Blackhawks. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there will be some hockey talk in today's show. Bobby Petrino is back at Arkansas. They always tell you that you can never go home again. But Bobby Petrino said, watch me do it. He's back in Fayetteville. There is something about that news when it broke yesterday that kind of gave me a very, very sneaky suspicion as to what's going on up in Fayetteville. I will dive into that a little bit later in the show. I also have an unpopular opinion segment today, as well as a bold prediction. And all of that will be placed atop the final verdict, which you will receive at the conclusion of today's show. So if all of that sounds like a plan, if all of that sounds like something you want to be a part of, just sit back and enjoy yourself. If it doesn't sound like something you want to be a part of, hopefully you go out and find the podcast that's right for you. And as always, to start each and every episode, don't forget to follow the podcast channel so that you can be alerted for brand new episodes of Sports Court when they become available to you on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't be afraid to leave ratings and reviews. That helps us to determine what you guys like about the pod, what you don't like and where you want to see the podcast go in the future. And finally, but most importantly, don't forget to tell family and friends about the amazing things that we're doing on our pod so that they can become part of the experience as well. Because at the end of the day, our number one goal still remains to become one of the biggest sports news podcasts in the podcast world. And the only way we can get there is by you guys continuing to spread the message about what we're doing on our show. And I say our show because this podcast is about you guys just as much as it is about me. And I thank each and every one of you that decides to make sports court a part of your already very busy day. So I mentioned at the top of the show today that this is a very special midweek edition of the show. And I just added that in there for no particular reason. This is just going to be another episode of sports court. The only difference being this is a brand new episode. So I just threw that in for added effects. Nothing really special about today's show, except for some of the commentary that we're going to dive into today. But there is one thing 
that I want to discuss. Then I'll get into my opening thoughts. I know some of you are just sitting back listening like this guy. When is he going to get to the opening thoughts? I guarantee you today's opening thoughts segment will be very, very interesting, especially if you are a fan of the NBA, but more specifically, if you're a fan of the Golden State Warriors. So let me get into a little bit of personal news. Then I'll dive into the opening thoughts segment. So I'm pretty sure you guys use YouTube like I do. And during the course of using YouTube throughout the course of your day, I'm pretty sure you've ran across a commercial or an ad. I should put it that way. It's not TV. You've ran across an ad or you've come across an ad that tells you that you've been missing out on receiving $6,400 from the government in subsidies. I've mentioned this before in the past when we still did our opening show rambles on Monday. The thing about those ads, we all know that they're false, but yet they continue to pop up before our YouTube video plays. And we're just sitting back wondering to ourselves, like, when are they finally going to catch on to the fact that we know that you're not getting $6,400 from the government? The government, if they were handing out $6,400, they would send you a letter in the mail from the IRS like they do when they tell you that you're behind on your taxes or that you owe the state something because they paid you too much during income tax season. So all I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that like a lot of you, I'm I've grown tired of seeing those ads. I'm pretty sure you guys know that they're false. I know damn well sure that they're false. And they continue to pop up each and every time I'm about to watch one of my favorite YouTube videos, one of my favorite YouTube channels. So to make a long story short, to the people that puts those ads on YouTube, all I'm asking simply is for you guys to stop because everybody knows that there is no way in hell the government's going to be handing out $6,400 in subsidies. And the ads tell you the same thing each and every time you can use this on gas, rent, groceries. And then the person that's in the ad, they'll tell you what they're going to do with their $6,400. Number one, I really don't care what you're going to do with your falsified $6,400. One guy in one of those ads said he's going to take his $6,400 and go out to dinner every night. As if I care. We know that the stuff's not real anyway. So you're not really convincing me of anything that I didn't already know to begin with. That's my little mini rant for today. I know a lot of you feel the exact same way. Just stop it. We know that there is no $6,400 coming from the government. There's a lot of things that the government needs to be working on right now. If you're picking up, if you're picking up on my drift. But just stop it. Because everybody can pick up to the fact that it's a ruse. There is no way. They're handing out that amount of money each and every month to every single American. And then the catch or the caveat is that you have to be under 65 and you can't be on Medicare or Medicaid. That should tell you that it's bullshit right there. And forgive my language. I'm just going to tell you the truth because you guys come to this podcast in search of the truth. And that's what I intend to give you. We all know that the commercial or the ad is bullshit. And I just wish that they would stop showing it. I would rather see an ad for the new iPhone 15, even though they're starting to advertise about that a little bit too much now. At least we know that's real. At least we know that that phone is made of all titanium. But just stop with the $6,400. It's not real. All right, friends. With that rant out of the way, it is time for you to receive my opening thoughts for today, and it will commence right now. 
So last night was a very interesting night in the world of the NBA. We saw the in-season tournament reach its conclusion in the first act. And what I mean when I say first act is that we're now getting to the stage of the in-season tournament where the quarterfinals are about to take place, the semifinals, and the championship. All of that's going to be happening in the next few days. But last night also gave us an opportunity to see one of the NBA's brightest teams. And of course, I'm speaking of none other than the Golden State Warriors. So the Golden State Warriors were in Sacramento last night to take on the Kings in a matchup that arguably proves to be one of the pivotal matches in the Western Conference. And what happened in that matchup last night? The Golden State Warriors did what they always did or did what they've always done. And they've relied heavily upon Steph Curry in that matchup last night. And they built up a pretty or pretty sizable 24-point lead. And what ultimately happened down the stretch? The Golden State Warriors lost control of that lead. Draymond Green's antics caused the Warriors to lose focus. Klay Thompson could not step up the way in which a lot of us thought he should have stepped up. Andrew Wiggins proves once again why he's not that guy. And Steph Curry came up short in the final seconds of the game. What am I getting at? Why did I decide to lead today's show off by discussing the Golden State Warriors? I led today's show off discussing the Warriors because everything that I've said about them for the past few months was on full display last night. If you've listened to this show for any duration of time, you can easily sense how I feel about the Golden State Warriors. They are an accomplished team, one of the most accomplished teams in NBA history. With Steph, Clay, and Draymond leading the way, they've won four NBA championships. And arguably, Steve Kerr is going to go down as one of the greatest coaches the NBA's ever seen. But in the back half of their dynasty, we've seen the Golden State Warriors implode right before our very eyes. And that's a pretty somber statement to make because just a few years ago, they were celebrating their fourth NBA championship when they beat the Boston Celtics. But it seems like that championship was many, many moons ago, although it was only two or three seasons ago. Listen, friends, the Golden State Warriors at this point in time is not going to get better because they lack the one thing that you need in today's NBA to get better or to be a good football basketball team, rather. Young guys. And I've stressed this point a number of different times. The problem that I see now with the Golden State Warriors is that they fail to build upon the foundation of their young core. Case in point, when the team decided to trade Jordan Poole to the Washington Wizards in exchange for Chris Paul, I was one of the people that has a platform that vehemently opposed that move. And then I heard everyone trying to tell me that it was a move that the Warriors had to make because it gave them a little bit more veteran presence in the locker room and on the floor. And Chris Paul came to Golden State in search of wanting to win a championship before he ultimately decides to retire. And what happened to Chris Paul last night? He got injured. So to sum this whole thing up, ladies and gentlemen, the Golden State Warriors are who they are at this point. And there is no changing who they're going to be going forward. They are a team that is still capitalizing in most people's eyes upon the success of yesterday. But one of the things that you always have to be cautious about when you're a team like the Golden State Warriors is that you can never afford to still be banking on your past to supplement where you are right now. How many people come up to you and tell you, man, I used to be shredded when I was younger. What happened? Why are you not shredded now? Or when someone comes up and tell you, I used to be a millionaire 20 years ago, what happened? 
Simply, you can't continue to bank on what happened yesterday, today. But if you're someone like me, and if you've seen what's happened to the Golden State Warriors from a mile away, what happened to them last night came as no surprise. Because there are a team right now that's very reliant upon Steph Curry. And when Steph Curry can't go off and give you a great shooting night, then you know nine times out of ten you're going to lose the game. Klay Thompson isn't the same player he once used to be. Andrew Wiggins, in the words of Charles Barkley, was never that guy. And the only time Draymond Green really gives you anything to be happy about is when he makes plays defensively. But any other time, Draymond Green is arguing with officials. He's getting technical fouls like he did in the game last night, and he's in the face of the opposition. That's all Draymond Green's good for at this point in his career. Now, I've spoken about Draymond Green in the past, and I've said that outside of Dennis Rodman, he may be one of the best defenders the game has ever seen. And I believe when it's all said and done, Draymond will be a Hall of Famer. But right now, what we're seeing from the Golden State Warriors is typical because we've seen it with all great dynasties in the past. You have your glory days, and then after your glory days comes and goes, what are you now as a team? And I feel like that's the problem that we're seeing with the Golden State Warriors. They're still trying to hang on to what they used to be and not trying to embrace where they are now. But they're going to be in for a rude awakening when Draymond Green retires, Steph Curry retires, and Klay Thompson retires, because then that team is going to be just like scrap metal down to the original foundation. And what are you going to do then if you're Steve Kerr? What if you're going to do then if you're Joe Lacob? Last night was embarrassing. I'll say it again for the Warrior fans that may be listening to my voice right now. Last night was embarrassing, thoroughly embarrassing. And let me just summarize this to put it in further context. After Draymond Green received his technical foul last night, the Sacramento Kings proceeded to go on a 13 and 13 to 3 run. Think about that. Draymond Green gets teed up, and the Sacramento Kings then go on to outscore Golden State 13 to 3. And they were trailing at the moment in where Draymond Green received his technical. Surprised? No. Shock? No. Because this is who the Warriors happens to be now. They're not that same team that could run rough shot over the Western Conference. They're not that same team that can run that could run rough shot over the entire NBA. If anything, they're still trying to salvage what remains of their dynasty and hope that it still gives them good fortune, good luck. But we've seen things turn out worse before, and I'm not trying to sit here and say that the Warriors' downfall is going to be the worst thing we've ever seen in sports, but it's damn near looking close to being that. And those were my opening thoughts for today. So outside of that, last night was also a very eventful night for all college football fans. So the college football playoff committee unveiled their latest rankings last night. And if you've been listening to the show for any period of time now, you know exactly how I feel about the college football playoff rankings. For those of you that may be new, first of all, welcome. Second of all, I've been one of the few people that has said on record that the college football playoff committee should wait until after championship Saturday to unveil their rankings. Now, they already do it, Selection Sunday, but that should be the only time in which the college football playoff committee comes out with their rankings. I don't feel as though the CFP should come out with their rankings during the final few weeks of the season. 
And some of you may be saying, well, what are you getting at? I'll numb it down a little bit more. The AP poll should be the only poll that matters until the day after championship Saturday. Then the college football playoff committee could come in, look over all the resumes, and then determine the four teams, schools, that are going to be able to vie for the national championship. That's the way I see it. And I know some of you may listen to that and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It makes perfect sense when you really strip it down and look at it from 50,000 feet in the air. But for right now, the CFP gives out their initial rankings in the final few weeks of the season, and it kind of gives us something to go by as far as gauging where the committee's mindset was during the decision process in that room last night. So let's look over these rankings. I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on this because as of right now, the rankings are really useless in more ways than one. Georgia, Michigan, Washington, and Florida State rounded out the top four. If you were with me yesterday during episode 20 of Red Zone, I told you guys that my initial four teams would have been Michigan, Georgia, Washington, and Florida State. So the committee agreed with me about the four teams. We just had a difference of opinion when it came to ranking those four teams. So here comes the biggest argument from last night's rankings unveiling. What happens when Championship Saturday arrives? Or in the case of the Pac-12, what happens when Championship Friday arrives? If you're someone like me and you enjoy chaos, then you want to see all hell break loose on championship Friday and Saturday. What I mean by that is you want to see Alabama beat Georgia. You want to see Iowa somehow beat Michigan. Oregon beats Washington and Louisville to beat Florida State. But before we can get there, there was also an argument that was being made last night about Florida State. Anybody that's paid any attention to Florida State football in the past few weeks can easily tell you why there has been a lot of talk around the Seminoles program. As we currently speak, Tate Rudemaker is the quarterback for the Florida State Seminoles. We all remember the injury that Jordan Travis suffered in their game against North Alabama. Hence the reason why Tate Rudemaker is the quarterback. And there has been a lot of conversation about should Florida State be allowed into the college football playoff even if they beat Louisville this upcoming Saturday in the ACC championship game? To answer that question, I do believe that they should get a spot because the college football playoff committee doesn't just look at teams that has the best resume. They also look at teams that are deserving of the spot. And if Florida State finishes their season undefeated, then they have every right to be included into the CFP's final rankings that are going to be unveiled Sunday at noon Eastern. That's just my initial take on it. But then you have all of those people on the outside looking in saying there's no way that the Seminoles should be included because you would be excluding teams like Texas, Alabama, Oregon, Ohio State, so on and so forth. Speaking of those schools, Oregon slid in at number five, followed by Ohio State at six, Alabama or Texas rather was at seven, Alabama's eight, Missouri's nine, Penn State is 10. Here's the thing. If you're Texas, Oregon, Alabama, you're wanting to see a lot of chaos. 
And granted, if you're Alabama, you're going to be a part of one of the biggest chaos moments if you can defeat Georgia in the SEC championship game. Now, I was one of those people that thought Georgia should have slid in the rankings because of their very uneventful showing this past weekend against Georgia Tech. But looking at that game, I think it's pretty safe to say the reason why Georgia was pretty lackluster in that matchup was because they held out a lot of their skill position players due to injury and because they wanted them rested up for this upcoming Saturday's SEC championship game. So what am I getting at? Where am I taking you to? This is going to be arguably one of the most consequential weekends since the college football playoff poll has been implemented. Because if everything goes according to plan, and when I say everything goes according to plan, I'm talking about Georgia beating Bama, Michigan taking care of Iowa, Washington taking care of Oregon, and Florida State taking care of Louisville, then there's your answer. Those are going to be your four schools. But once again, if you're someone like myself, and if chaos is your thing, then you want to see some of those undefeated schools suffer their first loss in their conference championship game. Especially if you're Alabama and Oregon. Now, where does Ohio State factor into this conversation? Because a lot of people were talking about them last night. If you're Ryan Day, this is the reason why you need to take care of your business. This is the reason why you need to start beating Michigan. So that you won't be on the outside looking in every damn year hoping that by some way, shape, fashion, or form, you can slide into the playoff if another school can't take care of their own business. But this year will not be like last year. There wasn't a lot of chaos in 2022. This year, there will be a lot of chaos. And Ohio State's road to the playoff won't be as easy as they thought it's going to be. So let's just go through the possible scenarios one more time. Let's just say Alabama beats Georgia. Alabama would have handed Georgia their first loss of the season, and Alabama can strengthen their resume by saying that we beat the number one team in the country. That's something the committee is going to have to look at. Michigan, I think, is pretty universally known by now that they're going to take care of Iowa. If this was one of those years where Michigan's offense was down so to speak and Iowa could get away with scoring 15 points then you would be looking at something totally different but Michigan has one of the best offenses in the country JJ McCarthy didn't have to really do too much last week against Ohio State but I do feel as though he's gonna have to do a lot against Iowa and once again that's not saying much because Iowa won't really give you a lot to do anyway if you're picking up on my drift so I think we can all universally say that Michigan's going to take care of Iowa. So that's already checked off. Michigan's going to retain their position in the college football playoff rankings. The Pac-12 championship is where all eyes will be on Friday night. Because I've said this on a number of different occasions in the past few days. I think, pound for pound, that Oregon has been playing much better football in the past few weeks than Washington. Since that Oregon-Washington game in Seattle a few weeks ago, both of those teams have really gone into two different courses of path or two different paths. Oregon has upped their play, whereas Washington's play has stayed kind of the same and even gone down at times. If Oregon can avenge their only loss of the season in the conference championship game against the same team that gave them their only loss of the season, then if you're the committee, that's also going to be something that you need to look at. And finally, 
the ACC championship. If you're Tate Rudemaker, you're going to need to have a very big game going up against Louisville. If Florida State loses that game, then I think all bets will be off on them sliding into the playoffs some kind of way. Because this would be the same Louisville team that beat them that lost the week prior to Kentucky. And Kentucky had five losses on their resume. So there's going to be a lot of things that's going to have to be worked out before Selection Sunday. Once again, I'm here for it because I'm a big fan of chaos, and I think the committee's going to have hell on their hands in that meeting room Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning if you're in the central time zone trying to determine which four schools should be allowed to compete for the national championship. And those were my initial thoughts about what we all witnessed on last night. We also witnessed something take place earlier this week that a lot of people are still talking about. A lot of people are still giving their opinions about. And of course, I'm talking about none other than the decision that David Tepper ultimately made to relieve Frank Reich of his duties 11 games into their 2023 season for the Carolina Panthers. If you were with me on Monday's edition of the show, I talked about that. And I said that I didn't feel sorry for Frank Reich. And still to this very day, I still don't feel sorry for Frank Reich losing his job. I saw what Frank Wright was as a head coach during his time in Indianapolis. And when he was hired by David Tepper to be the head coach of the Carolina Panthers, I knew that it was going to go sideways sooner rather than later. That brings me to my first point. There's been a lot of speculation and a lot of talk about one David Tepper in the past few days about his mismanagement of this team. And I just listened to all of the national sports media types talk about Tepper, talk about how he's an inept owner, how he needs to sell the team, how he's running the team into the ground. And I listened to those comments and I said to myself, hold up, not so fast. Has David Tepper done a bad job of running the Carolina Panthers? I think we can all agree and say yes. He's now going to be on his sixth coach and he's only owned the team for five years. So that tells you a lot about David Tepper. But secondly, if you're looking to assign blame, you have to look no further than the owners who approved the sale of the Panthers to one David Tepper. And I think a lot of people forget about that when they're talking about what's gone wrong with Carolina. Yes, David Tepper has a role to play in how bad this team has been since he bought the team. But you also have to look at the owners who thought that it was a very smart idea to allow his purchase of the team to go through. So I'm not going to sit here and be one of those people that's going to say, Tepper sure is running this team into the ground. He sure doesn't know what the hell he's doing. When you pay billions of dollars to obtain one of those 32 NFL teams, then you kind of have to know what's coming with that. If you're a fan or if you're someone that's in the national sports media conversation. My next point. There's been a lot of talk about who should take over as the next head coach. I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say something that may be perceived as unpopular. I believe right now, as we currently speak on November 29th of 2023, David Tepper doesn't know what he's looking for in a head coach. 
He can get up there to the podium and say what he's looking for in a coach, but I don't believe that he believes it to save his life. And that's the problem when your owner is also the GM of the team. Where have we seen that before? Hmm, let me think. It's going to take me a while. Oh, yes, Jerry Jones in Dallas. Jerry Jones is the owner, GM, president of the Cal- or the Dallas Cowboys. And David Tepper may as well fire Scott Fitterer so he can wear all the hats that's involved with the personnel decisions of the team. Because it's pretty clear right now that David Tepper outrules anyone in that Panthers organization in that front office. Everything has to be okayed by Tepper. Case in point, this past April, when the team was looking to select their franchise quarterback, there was some discussion in the building as to who were they going to take. Now, according to sources, Frank Reich and his coaching staff wanted C.J. Stroud, but David Tepper overruled all of them and said that he liked Bryce Young and the team should select Bryce Young. And let me get to that, too. Because this is also driving a wedge in a lot of the conversation surrounding Carolina right now. It's very, very funny that a lot of the national sports media types who are talking about Carolina were some of the same ones just a few months ago that were trying to tell you and I that Bryce Young going to Carolina was the best situation for his career. And that the Panthers and all of the coaches that they have on that staff would be able to better assist Bryce Young than what C.J. Stroud was going to walk into in Houston. Everybody looked at the fact how Frank Reich brought in Josh McCown, Thomas Brown, Jim Caldwell as an advisor, and those guys collectively were going to put Bryce Young in a better position than C.J. Stroud in Houston. And lo and behold, what has turned out to be true? C.J. Stroud is succeeding more in Houston than Bryce Young has in Carolina. Now, if you've been listening to this show over the past few weeks, I've said that it's not solely Bryce Young's fault as to the reason why he struggled so far in his first season. A lot of it has to go towards the coaching staff, and a lot of it also has to go towards David Tepper because he's the one that oversees all of this mess. And it's his decisions that keeps this team constantly behind the eight ball. So let me get to my final point before I move on. What should David Tepper look for in a head coach. Number one, you need to find someone who's committed to developing Bryce Young into being the franchise quarterback that you drafted him to be. That has to be the first thing going, the end all be all. If the next head coach that you bring into the fold is not committed into developing Bryce Young into the franchise quarterback, then he doesn't need to be hired. You need someone that's willing to say, you know what, is going to be a very, very long road to develop Bryce Young into being the quarterback that you want him to be, but I'm willing to take on the challenge. Second of all, you have to be a head coach that's willing to deal with the fact that you're going to be operating with a depleted roster. Because this Carolina Panthers team, outside of a few skill position players, are a very depleted roster. And you really don't have a lot going for yourself right now if you're a head coach that's about to walk into that situation. Thirdly, You have to deal with the fact that you're in a division that a lot of people don't think is all that great. Case in point, the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints are tied right now for first place in the NFC South, and both of them are one game below 500. That tells you a lot about the NFC South. But I warned you guys before the season started, I said that the NFC South this season looks to be one of those years in where the division champion could make it to the playoffs with a 7-10 record. 
And it looks like that's going to come to fruition because no team in the NFC South so far has stepped up to really take the mantle of being the best team in that division. Although the Atlanta Falcons currently lead the division with a five and six record. But no team really looks as though they want to be the standard bearer of the NFC South. And that's quite disturbing as a football fan. And the final thing that you need to be willing to accept if you're someone that wants the Carolina Panthers job, you have to be willing to accept the fact that you won't have full say over the personnel decisions. Because as it has become very obvious to a lot of us by now, David Tepper is the sole lone voice when it comes to personnel decisions. Because if he wasn't, C.J. Stroud would be a Carolina Panther right now and Bryce Young would be a Houston Texan. And the last thing that I want to say, for everybody out there that still looks at both situations and say that Bryce Young, or let me back up, to everybody who still believes that C.J. Stroud would be a much better quarterback for Carolina than Bryce Young, that's not obviously the case. Because if C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young were to trade places, C.J. Stroud would go through the same type of growing pains that Bryce Young's going through as we currently speak. The only difference would be C.J. Stroud is a bigger, taller quarterback than Bryce. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't believe that Bryce Young would be having the same type of success in Houston that C.J.'s having. That's just my honest assessment. So who are some viable candidates to take this Panthers job? I'll be perfectly honest with you. Knowing how short-tempered David Tepper is, I'm not going to sit here and try to entertain who would be a possible fit for that job. Because once again, I don't even believe David Tepper knows what he's looking for in a head coach. Because if he did, he wouldn't be so quick to pull the trigger when it comes time to fire a coach. And a lot of us still believes that Steve Wilk should have kept that job in a full-time capacity. But he wanted to go out and bring in his own guy again, and we saw that that failed again. So if you're a Carolina Panther fan right now, I wish I could sit here and tell you today that things are going to get better. But I can't promise you that. Because a lot of it starts with your owner, who's impulsive, who wants everything to be his way. And the reason why Tepper and a lot of these owners want things to be their way is because they feel like they made the investment in the team so they should have full say so. Why do you think Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson butted heads? Because Jerry's looking like I'm the one that had to spend millions of dollars to buy this team. And I'm not going to have anybody coming in here telling me what the hell I need to do when I've spent all of my money on getting this team. And I feel David Tepper's the exact same way. No GM, no head coach is going to come in here and tell me what I need to do with my team. So what have we learned here? If you're someone that's looking to dole out blame for everything that's gone wrong in Carolina right now, look no further than the owners who okayed the sale of the Carolina Panthers to David Tepper. And if you're someone that's wanting to be a head coach in the National Football League, the Carolina Panthers may not be the job that you want especially if you're one of these young offensive-minded coordinators that's looking for your first opportunity to be a head coach, someone like a Ben Johnson right now in Detroit, and if you're Brian Johnson in Philadelphia, if you're looking to be a head coach for the first time in the NFL, honestly, 
I would not want that job because there's a lot of work that goes into being the head coach of the Panthers because you're dealing with an owner who wants everything to be his way or no way in hell. But we know that there's going to be some guys that, that are going to be vying for that job. If I was a coordinator on a team right now, I would tell my GM, I would tell my owner, do not give them permission to interview me. I know that I may be potentially messing up my chance to ever get a head coaching job in the future, but I don't want that job. And it's not because I don't want to help with the development of Bryce Young. It's because I don't want to deal with an owner like Tepper who's always going to put his two cents in with everything that we do as far as the personnel is concerned. That's the reason why I wouldn't want that team. I would love to work and develop with Bryce Young to develop his game to make him a much better quarterback. But if I have to deal with that owner, then I don't want the headache. Because it's already a headache in itself trying to develop Bryce Young, who a lot of people are already deeming to be a bust. But then you're going to have to deal with an even bigger headache with Tepper. So we'll see who's going to be the unlucky person that's going to take that job when David Tepper finally makes the announcement. I am dreading that because I know somebody's going to take that job hoping that it's going to springboard them to success. And next thing you know, all hell's going to break loose in Charlotte, North Carolina. Don't want it to happen, but I believe it's going to happen. You know something else that's going to happen as we switch gears here? Something that's going to happen, or let me not speak in, let me not speak on it in assurances. Let me just speak on it in perhaps. Something that could happen. The Los Angeles Lakers could potentially win the in-season tournament, aka the NBA Cup. Some of you may have thought that you heard that wrong, but you didn't hear that wrong. You heard that accurately and correctly. As we currently speak, the Los Angeles Lakers are undefeated in in in-season tournament play. And they have a very strong chance against the Phoenix Suns to knock them out and to move on to the semifinal, where they will await the winner of the Thunder... King series, if I remember correctly. So let me just go ahead and get this out the way, because I know some of you have been trying to come back to this pod and you've been trying to wait around to get my final take. Takeaways from the end season tournament. I don't know why I just pause right there. So some final takeaways from the end season tournament. At first, I didn't think I was going to like it. Because I looked at it as something that was easily going to be taken away from the NBA in a year or two. But then as I start to watch it more and more and more, I said to myself, man, this is arguably something I can get behind. I like that it's more fast paced. You can tell that the players have bought into it and you can clearly see that there is a distinction between the good teams in the NBA and the bad teams in the NBA. I say that to say this. It gives us, in a sense, a preview of coming attractions. It gives us a preview of what we can expect in the NBA playoffs. I'll go out on a limb and say that. I may be standing on that cliff by myself, but I think wholeheartedly that's what we're seeing from the in-season tournament. It's giving us an opportunity to take an early look at the teams that are going to be vying for playoff positioning 
when that time finally gets here in the early portion of next year. So I guess what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that I'm not anti in-season tournament anymore. I was on the fence initially, but I'm enjoying it now. The matchups are faster. The players seem to be enjoying it, and I can't wait to see who's going to be crowned in-season tournament champion next month in Las Vegas. I think December 7th or December the 9th is when the champion will be crowned. And I know some of you out there walked into that in-season tournament with the same type of, I guess I can say, questions. And I've walked out of it saying to myself, I like this. Hope the NBA keeps it up for the foreseeable future, of course. All right, friends. NFL Week 13 is nearly upon us. We have gone through the NFL season at a very rapid pace. I didn't think we were going to go through the NFL season as fast as we have, but we're at Week 13, and we have a very interesting matchup on our hands tomorrow night on Thursday Night Football. The Dallas Cowboys will be hosting the Seattle Seahawks. Currently, the Dallas Cowboys are favored by nine, and the over-under is set at 47 and a half. So looking at this matchup from 50,000 feet in the air, initially, who do I think has the edge in this game? I'm going to have to say the Dallas Cowboys. I've liked what I've seen from the Cowboys as a team the past few weeks. As we currently speak, they're on a three-game win streak, and they're 4-1 and one in their last five games. And when you look at the Seattle Seahawks, they've lost their last two, and they're 2-3 and three in their last five games. If I'm really going to be honest with you guys about the Seahawks this season, Although they're 6-5, and five, they have been a very disappointing version of a 6-5 and five football team. I don't really know what they do well, and they have a lot of questions that they need to answer before they're ultimately eliminated from postseason contention. Because the Seattle Seahawks that we saw last season pales in comparison to the one that we're seeing, or the Seattle Seahawks that we're seeing this season pales in comparison to the team that we saw last season. Geno Smith was a much better quarterback in 2022 than he's been so far in 2023. You have great weapons. You have Jackson Smith and Jigba. You have DK Metcalf. You have Tyler Lockett. You have a great ground game right now being led by Zach Charbonnet as Kenneth Walker deals with injury. And the defense can be hit or miss at times, but when you need them to step up and make a big play, they've shown on more than one occasion that they can do that. So that leads me to the question, why are the Seahawks such a bad football team? And I think that that's a question that a lot of Seahawks fans are grappling with as we currently speak. The Dallas Cowboys, they are a very, very great team at home. I think in the past two years, if I remember correctly, they're undefeated at home in the regular season. And a lot of that speaks to the play of their quarterback, Dak Prescott. We've all known now for quite some time that Dak Prescott is a much better quarterback at home than he is on the road. And I think that that's going to show up for the Cowboys again on tomorrow. I believe that that defense is going to get after Geno Smith early and often. I think he's still dealing with the after effects of the injury that he suffered a few weeks ago. So you already know what's going to happen when you have a banged up quarterback going up against a great defense. Some things are going to be done to him that would not have been done to him if he was 100% healthy. Tricky matchup. Tricky, tricky matchup here. I'm going to have to go with the Dallas Cowboys to win this game. And I know that I said all of that and you probably gauged that I was going to go 
with the Dallas Cowboys, but this matchup still seems interesting to me because we've seen from the Cowboys in the past few years that when they're slated to win a game, nine times out of ten, they go out and lose said game. They could be heavy favorites in a game that they're supposed to blow the opposition out by 30. And next thing you know, they're barely hanging in in the fourth quarter. And they have to have Brandon Aubrey come out there and kick the game-winning field goal. I'm not trying to say that that's going to happen tomorrow night. But if the Seahawks overlook this, or if the Cowboys rather overlook this game, trying to look down the remainder of their schedule, it could come back to bite them. So I'm going to take the Cowboys to win this game. The Seahawks will drop to 6-6, and and I think that you're going to start hearing a lot of rumblings come from Seattle about where the team is going as far as their direction is concerned, and the Dallas Cowboys are going to stay in the hunt for not only the division title, but potentially the number one seed in the NFC. And I know what some of you may be saying right now, how can they get the number one seed in the NFC if the Philadelphia Eagles are 10-1? and We've seen wilder things happen in the NBA. We've seen wilder things happen in the world of sports as a whole. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Dallas Cowboys don't try to make a last-ditch attempt or last-ditch push to try to overtake the Eagles for the number one seed in the NFC and by virtue, the NFC East championship title as a whole. Speaking of the Philadelphia Eagles, the game of the weekend, in my opinion, will take place at Lincoln Financial Field at 325 on Fox. The Philadelphia Eagles will host the San Francisco 49ers in a rematch of last season's NFC Championship game. Now, I think the term rematch is selling this game a little short because I really wouldn't say that that was a a matchup that all of us were expecting because early on in the game, Brock Purdy went out with the elbow injury and they went through a bevy of different backup quarterbacks during the duration of that game. It got so bad to where Christian McCaffrey had to step in some plays to play quarterback. I think we're going to see a much different matchup unfold this upcoming Sunday in Philadelphia. Not only are both teams at, I'm not going to say full strength because both teams are dealing with injuries of their own right now, but this is going to be the healthiest we're going to see both of these teams in 2023. Because if they meet again in the playoffs, both teams will not be as healthy as they're going to be in Sunday's matchup. I think that if you're the Niners, you're going to have to prioritize making sure that your offensive line can deal with that Philadelphia Eagles front. Because believe it or not, the Philadelphia Eagles have one of the best defensive fronts in the NFL. Their back end is pretty suspect, and I believe that Brock Purdy is going to take full advantage of that, hooking up with Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, George Kittle. We're going to see Brock Purdy exploit that very shaky Philadelphia secondary, and I'm just interested to see how the Philadelphia Eagles defensive front handles Christian McCaffrey. Because one thing we know about him is that he can catch the football out of the backfield and he can shred you on the ground with a lot of yards rushing as well. And if you're the Philadelphia Eagles, we all know what they possess offensively. Jalen Hurts, DeAndre Swift, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, we know what they have. And I want to see how San Francisco defensively can stack up against the Eagles offensively. Both teams are hitting their stride right now. Coming out of their bye week, we were seeing a more rejuvenated San Francisco football team. And the Philadelphia Eagles, they just keep humming along right now. They got the win last week against the Buffalo Bills, 37-34 in overtime. All I'm saying is that we need to expect a very high-octane matchup this upcoming Sunday because 
that game will be a preview of coming attractions. I'm booking it. And I will give you my prediction for that game later this week when we do our NFL Week 13 preview and prediction show. So be on the lookout for that episode dropping sometime later this week in your podcast feed. I would tell you that it's going to drop on Saturday, but we may put it out a little earlier. It may come out Thursday night. It may come out Friday morning after we finish our regularly scheduled episode of Sports Court. So I'm unknowing as to when that episode will be at your disposal. So just be on the lookout. Make sure you're following the podcast channel so that you can be alerted for that episode when it finally does drop in your podcast feed. So switching gears, ladies and gentlemen, I told you that I wanted to have a conversation about Josh Dobbs. Going back to Monday night, I think we all kind of saw why Josh Dobbs has been a journeyman so far in his NFL career. To give you a little bit of a refresher as to what he did in Monday's matchup against the Bears, he was 22 of 32 for 185 yards, one touchdown, and four interceptions. When we did our recap of that game on yesterday's edition of Red Zone, I told you guys that Josh Dobbs was lucky to come out of that matchup with only four interceptions because I feel or I felt as though during that matchup, he could have easily had six or seven interceptions. It was just the fact that the Bears defenders couldn't keep the ball in their grasp. So we saw what Josh Dobbs did Monday night. And afterwards, we heard from all of the prominent sports media talking heads about the performance that Dobbs gave. It's quite funny to me that a few weeks ago, Josh Dobbs went from being one of the best stories of the NFL season to just being a journeyman quarterback, to just being a backup quarterback, or in the words of Steve Smith Sr., a jag, just a guy. I'm going to actually come to the defense of Josh Dobbs. When he was traded from Arizona to Minnesota, no one truly expected anything from Josh Dobbs as he filled in for Kirk Cousins. And matter of fact, when Kirk Cousins went down with his season-ending injury, everybody started writing off the Minnesota Vikings saying there is no way that the Vikings are going to come back and still be relevant in the NFC playoff conversation. And then what ultimately happens? Josh Dobbs steps out there on the field in their game against the Falcons, and he just looks as though he's cool, calm, and collected. Now, he did have some fumbles, but he did ultimately lead the Vikings on a game-winning drive that sealed the victory for them against the Falcons. And then from there, everybody just started buying into the Josh Dobbs hype. And that hype train came crashing to a halt on Monday night. So you may be wondering to yourself, well, Agarius, why are you defending Josh Dobbs? And I'm defending Josh Dobbs because Monday's loss wasn't solely his fault. Some of those interceptions were the fault of his wide receivers. And I also told you yesterday that Kevin O'Connell deserves some blame for the way in which he called that game. If you go back and look at the stat sheet from Monday's performance, Kevin O'Connell called 32 pass plays and only called 17 rushing plays. And Dobbs only carried the ball twice for 11 yards. Anybody who knows anything about Josh Dobbs will easily be able to tell you that Josh Dobbs should have used his legs more. And I think if he did use his legs more, and if they didn't become so pass heavy in that matchup, the Vikings could have easily won that game. So I'm going to defend 
Josh Dobbs because he doesn't deserve all the slander that's coming his way from the national sports media. You got guys saying he proved why he's a backup quarterback. Well, hell, Josh Dobbs never said that he was starting quarterback caliber in this league. He never stated that. But this is what happens a lot of time. And I've spoken about this in the past, this fair weather mentality. When everything is going good, you hear everybody singing the praises. But the minute that things start going bad, the minute that shit hits the fan, forgive my language once once again, everybody tries to jump off the train as fast as they can. The same thing happened earlier this season with Colorado when they started 3-0. Everybody was trying to tell you and I, if you're not on the Deion Sanders hype train, if you're not on the Colorado hype train, then you're just a hater. And then as the season progressed and they went 1-8 and eight down the stretch, Everybody was like, you know what? I see what you were talking about. Tried to tell you, but then when we were trying to tell you at the beginning of the season, we were haters. I'm not going to sell my Josh Dobbs stock, even though the Minnesota Vikings have sold their stock. Because Kevin O'Connell announced after the game that coming out of their bye week, he's unsure as to who's going to be their starting quarterback. You want to talk about rattling someone's confidence you're rattling Josh Dobbs's confidence because let's just say for the sake of argument I think Nick Mullins and Jaron Hall are their other two quarterbacks on the roster let's just say for the sake of argument that Jaron Hall gets to start week 14 against the Raiders and he comes out and performs poorly then you turn to Josh Dobbs again and he goes out there and gives you the win I think the conversation would easily turn to why didn't you guys stick with him from the get-go? So, no, I'm not going to sell my stock in Josh Dobbs. Although the Minnesota Vikings have shown that they have sold their stock in him. Very, very bad thing to do, especially with a quarterback that you need to salvage your season. Because the Vikings right now, as we currently speak, still have a way to get into the playoffs. They just have to win out and hope that the Lions start losing. Simple case scenario there. Moving on. Did you guys see what Tyreek Hill had to say about the Miami Dolphins this season? Tyreek Hill was speaking to CBS Sports, and he was talking about the year that the Miami Dolphins are having. As we currently speak, the Dolphins have the best record in the AFC East at 8-3, and three, and they're looked at as one of the prohibited favorites to win the AFC Championship game. I'm not going to go as far as to say they're one of the prohibited favorites to win the Super Bowl. They're one of the prohibited favorites to win their conference. So during his interview with CBS Sports, he was asked about the teams that he's played on. And that led to him saying that he believes that the 2023 Miami Dolphins are a much better team than the 2019 Kansas City Chiefs. So for those of you that may have not followed the story as much as I have, let me put this into perspective. In 2019, the Kansas City Chiefs won Super Bowl 54 against the San Francisco 49ers. They had to come back in that game to win it. We all remember when Jimmy Garoppolo missed Emmanuel Sanders' wide-open pass. If Emmanuel Sanders would have hauled that pass in, the Niners would have went on to win the Super Bowl. Speaking of the Niners in the Super Bowl, this is just a crazy stat 
that I want to throw out. The past two times that the San Francisco 49ers have made it to the Super Bowl, they've lost. Think about that now. The first five times that the San Francisco 49ers made it to the Super Bowl with Joe Montana and Steve Young as their quarterback, they won the Super Bowl. But then in 2012 with Colin Kaepernick, they got there and lost on the last play of the game. And when they got there in 2019 with Jimmy G, they lost on nearly the last play of the game. So that's just a very crazy stat to throw out that at one point in time, the San Francisco 49ers had an unblemished record in Super Bowls and the past two times they've lost both. So that's just something that I want to throw out. Tyreek Hill was an integral part of the Chiefs winning that Super Bowl. And everybody thought that as long as he stayed in Kansas City, they were going to be instant championship contenders yearly. And what ultimately happened? Tyreek Hill wanted to be paid like the top wide receiver in the NFL. The Kansas City Chiefs had other ideas and decided to trade him to the Miami Dolphins. And upon his arrival in Miami, they gave him the contract that he's looking for or that he was looking for. I should put it in more past tense form. Do I agree with Tyreek Hill saying that the Dolphins this year are much better than the Chiefs of 2019? Of course not. And I say that because if you look at the Miami Dolphins this season, yes, they have an eight and three record, but their record is skewed. They have a winning record when they go against competition that has a record of below 500, but they have struggled against teams who have a record of 500 and better. Remember when they were blown out by Buffalo, they went over to Germany and lost to the Chiefs and they lost to the Philadelphia Eagles. They've shown a time or two this season or three that they have a hard time dealing with the best of the best in the NFL. But when it comes down to the teams that they can easily just beat up upon, they have their way. Now, I get where he's going with his comments, because as a member of the team, you want to try to sound like a politician. You want to make sure that all Miami Dolphins fans understand that you're solely bought into that team and to the goal of bringing a championship to Miami. It's sort of like when C.J. Stroud a few days ago kind of rubbed Houston Texans fans and people who live in Houston the wrong way when he said that he prefers L.A. girls over Houston girls. If you haven't seen that interview, it's on YouTube. But a lot of Houston Texans fans and a lot of Houston natives and people that live there now were looking at C.J. Stroud like, You're our franchise quarterback. You're going to be here for the next decade, hopefully. And you're coming in here already saying that you don't prefer our women over L.A. women. It was a crazy discussion and everybody had their own opinion about it. It was like when Jalen Hurts finally arrived in Philadelphia and he was wearing a Houston Astros hat, if I remember correctly. And everybody was like, Jalen, you got to come up here and wear a Philadelphia Phillies hat. We understand you're from the Houston area, but you're in Philadelphia now. So you kind of get how that goes. That's the reason why being a professional athlete. Well, you know, I'll take take that back. I'll say this very quickly. That's one of the benefits that comes from being in a state like Mississippi, where you have no professional sports teams. If I was a professional athlete and if I was, I'll throw it to you this way. Let's say for the sake of argument that I'm a quarterback somewhere, just fill in the blank as it pertains to a college, and I get drafted to the Seattle Seahawks. I could still go there 
and wear a Atlanta Braves hat or whatever the case may be, because I'm not I'm not from Atlanta. And when I go to Seattle, who knows? I may not be a big fan of the Mariners. So that's just one of those crazy debates. But anyway, let me get back on point. I understand why Tyreek Hill made those comments, because he wants to instill in the minds of Miami Dolphins fans that he's going along with the mission that's currently in front of him to bring a Super Bowl there. But everybody knows that the 2019 Chiefs were a far better team than the Dolphins are right now. And we can also point to the fact that Patrick Mahomes is a better quarterback than Tua. Now, I'm one of those people that has always been on the fence when it comes to Tua. I'm not the biggest fan of Tua, but I'm also not anti-Tua, if that makes sense. I think that he's a competent quarterback. I think that he gets the job done. But the question that's going to come up in the next few weeks here is that can he get your team over the hump? Because if Tua goes out there and struggles in the playoffs, then nine times out of ten, your whole team will struggle because your team goes as your quarterback goes. And if Tua has a rough and shaky start in the playoffs, nine times out of ten, the Dolphins will be bounced before they can even get to the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. So I just think Tyreek Hill was saying that because, you know, he wanted to stay in the good graces of Miami Dolphins fans. And it seems like every time he talks now, he's trying to take some type of swipe at Kansas City. And we know why, because they wouldn't give him the contract that he wanted. If they were to have given him the contract that he was desiring. You know, just as well as I do, that we wouldn't be hearing all this that we're hearing now. So we'll leave that where it should be and hopefully they accomplish the goal because if Tyreek Hill is serious about retiring in the next few years then you're going to have to kind of speed along the process because you can't afford to let one of the best wide receivers in the NFL come to your city come to your team and not win a championship and I think a lot of Minnesota Viking fans are looking at that same prospect with Justin Jefferson we can't let one of the best wide receivers in the league come here and not make it far into the playoffs with him. All right, so let's shift back to the NBA. Um, One of the things that I've always enjoyed about sports, and some of you are not going to believe this, but trust and believe me, this is the 100% truth. One of the things that I enjoy about sports is every time a new owner or a new ownership group comes in to take over a team. When Josh Harris and Magic Johnson bought the Washington Commanders from Daniel Schneider, I was one of those people that were eager to see what Josh Harris and Magic Johnson were going to do with the team. Now, I felt one of their first orders of business should have been firing Ron Rivera, but that's a conversation for a different day. But it's always intrigued me seeing new owners come in and what are they going to do with the respective team that they've just purchased. And I think that same thing would have applied to what we're about to discuss next But after reading the details, not so much. So it was announced yesterday that Mark Cuban will be selling a minority stake or majority stake of the Dallas Mavericks. Now, to put that into context, Mark Cuban has owned the Dallas Mavericks since 2000 when he bought the team for three hundred and forty five million dollars. If I remember correctly, two hundred eighty five million dollars. Got the number right in front of me and still got it wrong. 285. That's how you can tell that we do this show without any of the researchers. 
do all the research in myself. And I know some of you are saying, well, that's the reason why this show is the way it is. But anyway, 285 million back in 2000 is what Mark Cuban paid for the Dallas Mavericks. And it's pretty safe to say that during his time as owner, they've had some pretty successful moments, made it to the finals a few times, won the championship in 2011 with Dirk Nowinski leading the way. And they've been a fixture in the Western Conference Championship conversation. Back then, not so much here lately. How do we feel about this? I don't really know how to feel about this. Miriam Alderson is who's going to buy the majority stake of the team. And she's going to pay Mark Cuban over $3 billion to acquire this team. But here's the caveat. Mark Cuban will still maintain control over the team and will still run the day-to-day operations. So when I first heard that this news had broke, I was thinking to myself, what's the point of selling the majority stake of the team? And there has been some reports floating out there that Mark Cuban did this because he's flirting with a run for president in 2024 or whatever the case may be, or he's looking to try to buy some other sports team somewhere else, whatever. You know, I can't honestly sit here and tell you that I have any opinion about this one way or the other, because I have to see honestly how this works out. Now, I get why he's going to keep control of the team, because Miriam Alderson, she's probably coming in saying, you know, I don't really know too much about the basketball side of this. And you've done a great job of it since owning the team. So I would like for you to stay around, teach me the ropes. And then one day, you know, I'll be fully ready to take over this team solely on my own accord that could be in the works i I just don't know it's not like mark cuban's hurting for money it's not like he needed the three billion dollars but it's an interesting decision that mark cuban has ultimately made right here and right now so we'll follow it and see where it takes us and i will keep you guys updated about it as my thoughts about the move continues to evolve speaking of my thoughts continuing to evolve Yesterday, I was minding my business and I was scrolling through one of my favorite sports apps, trying to find content to discuss with you guys today. And I just so happened to scroll through the hockey section and I was reading about the Chicago Blackhawks and the decision that they made to place Corey Perry on waivers. Now, for anybody who doesn't know anything about Corey Perry or the situation that he's involved in. Over the offseason, Corey Perry was signed by the Chicago Blackhawks from the Tampa Bay Lightning to give you more veteran leadership in your locker room. Because as we all know right now, those of us that happens to be hockey fans, they are a young hockey team. We all remember when they went out and drafted Connor Bedard and they're just a young team. Let me put it to you that way. So you went out and got someone like a Corey Perry who could give you that veteran leadership in your locker room that you sorely needed. There has been some rumblings in the Chicago Blackhawks organization about Connor Perry after Corey Perry, after he was placed on leave a few weeks ago and everybody wanted to know what's going on. Yesterday we found the answer to that question. According to the GM of the Blackhawks, Kyle Davison, 
the reason why Corey Perry was placed on leave was because of quote unquote workplace misconduct involving a team employee. Now he's been placed on waivers. He cleared waivers today and now he's going to be a free agent so he can basically sign wherever he wants to sign. So here's the question. Where will Corey Perry sign? And to answer that question, I think teams are going to call the Chicago Blackhawks to get a sense of what happened. They're going to pick up the phone and be like, hey, we see that Corey Perry is a free agent. We're thinking about signing him. But why did you guys get rid of him? What truly went on with that team employee that was so bad that caused you guys to release him? And then, of course, Kyle Davidson will give the answer, and that will give teams kind of an inkling as to whether or not they should sign him or not. It's going to be wild, but this isn't the first time that it's happened. It won't be the last time that it's going to happen where a player is going to be put placed on waivers because of workplace misconduct towards a team employee. If you're Corey Perry, you may have just, in a sense, caused your days of playing in the National Hockey League to come to an abrupt end. Because if you look at him right now, he's only... Well, he's 38. So I can't say he's only 38. In hockey years, 38 is pretty old. No disrespect, but let's just call it like we see it. 38 is old in hockey years. How many teams would be willing to sign a 38-year-old right winger whose last job he had taken from him because of workplace misconduct with a team employee? So we'll see. Interesting. You know something that's interesting, more interesting than that? I'm I'm not going to say more interesting than that because I don't want to take away from the seriousness of that topic. But something that's interesting. Have you guys ever heard in life the phrase, you can never go home again? And everybody has had their own adaptations of that phrase. Some people have added more to it. Some people have taken something away from that phrase. But all in all, the phrase that I've always heard growing up is that you can never go home again. New Edition has a song about that. Anyway, for those of you that know, you know. Bobby Petrino looked that phrase squarely in the eye and said, I bet you I'm going home again. What am I talking about? Bobby Petrino will make his way back to Fayetteville, Arkansas to become the Razorbacks offensive coordinator. Do I like the move? Forgive my language once again, but damn right. Yes, I love this move. I think that this was a move that Sam Pittman had to make because when Kendall Browse left Arkansas to become the offensive coordinator at TCU, we clearly saw the offense take a step back as opposed to a step forward. Yeah, that was right. When he left to go to TCU and, you know, more money, more whatever the case may be. When he left, we saw the offense take a step back as opposed to a step forward. I think Bobby Petrino is going to be able to get this offense humming again because when he was brought in to College Station at the beginning of this season by Jimbo Fisher, not only did their offense score more points than 2022, but there were times where you thought to yourself, man, Texas A&M may have one of the best offenses in the nation, and we couldn't have said that about Texas A&M in 2022 because their offense wasn't really all that to speak about and then some. But I did tell you guys at the top of the show today 
that I'm reading a little bit more into Bobby Petrino returning to Arkansas than most. So let me give you my hunch about Petrino's return to Fayetteville. I believe that this has secession plan written all over it. What do I mean when I say that? Let's just say for the sake of argument that heading into 2024, that will be the make or break year for Sam Pittman. And the athletic director looks at 2024 and tells Sam Pittman, if you don't turn this program around and if we don't double our win total or even triple our win total, you will be relieved of your duties. They finished 2023, four and eight, if I remember correctly. Not that great. And I said triple the win total like they're going to go 12 and 0 anyway. If we don't double our win total, if we're not bowl eligible, and if we're not in the thick of the SEC championship conversation, then your job is going to be taken from you. Here's where the succession plan comes into play. Bobby Petrino can then reclaim the head coaching position. Now, we all remember when Petrino was there. He was the head coach from 2008 until 2011, until he was fired in April of 2012 for being involved in an improper relationship with a female staffer that he had hired. She was 25 years old. And we all remember when he stood up there at the podium with the neck brace on after being involved in a motorcycle accident. We all remember that. I've actually joked about that in the past few weeks, not the accident, but I've talked about Bobby Petrino in the past few weeks. And it's quite interesting that he's returned to the scene of the crime proverbially, if you want to look at it that way. I think he's going to give that Razorback offense the boost that it's been looking for. And if he can do that, I think it's going to save Sam Pittman's job. And it may springboard Petrino into getting another head coaching job of his own. So there's a lot of win-wins that you can take away from him making his return back to Fayetteville. And I can't wait to see what he produces for that Razorbacks offense in 2024. Now, chances are you're going to have to do it without... KJ Jefferson, because I believe that he's leaving to go to the NFL. So we'll see who's going to step in as quarterback for the Razorbacks in 2024. So it is time for today's unpopular opinion, ladies and gentlemen. And today's unpopular opinion will also come from the world of college football. So last week, Deion Sanders made a very interesting comment about players that wants to come to Colorado just to take in the perks of NIL. And he basically said in no uncertain terms that Colorado will not be looked at as an ATM. You're not going to come here just to build your brand using name, image, and likeness. You're going to come here, play football, get an education so that you can be prepared for what the real world has to throw at you. A few days after making those comments, it was revealed that a number of recruits decided to decommit from Colorado to try to go out and scope out the landscape to see what else is out there at their disposal. And that led to Deion Sanders basically saying, you know what, the NCAA needs to institute a rule where if you're locked in to play at a particular university, you cannot change your mind and go out there and see what's available for you. At one point in time, I shared Deion Sanders' sentiment about that. I spoke about that sometime last year. I can't remember when, but I spoke about that. So I said all of that to say what I'm about to say in today's unpopular opinion. Deion Sanders is finding out how it feels to be a head coach in Division I football. 
Deion Sanders has to understand that there is a very big difference between coaching at Jackson State and coaching at Colorado. Certain perks that you were allowed in the SWAC you're not allowed to have or that you're not obligated to have right away in the Big 12, where you guys will be returning to in 2024. Right now you're in the Pac-12. You know what? Before I make my next point, I want to go back to something that I said a few weeks ago during an episode of Red Zone. I spoke about potential recruits that want to go out to Colorado and play for Deion Sanders. And I asked a very poignant question. How many of those guys would be willing to go out there to Colorado and play for Deion Sanders knowing that he coaches a particular way and that he holds his son in higher regards than any other player on the team? His son, Travis Hunter, and his other son, Shiloh. And I did not think that that was going to springboard into seeing recruits decommit from Colorado to go out there and see what's available to them. But this is the growing pains that comes with becoming a head coach at the next level, the Division I level. You're going to have recruits who tell you initially that they're brought into what you're trying to build at your particular program only to go out there and be persuaded by another coach that, hey, the grass is green over here. You may want to go there initially, but we got something even better here. So come over here and let's show you what we have. And I think that he's clearly seeing what happens when you become a Division I football coach. Now, do I believe that the few recruits that have left Colorado will lead to something more massive in the next few days and weeks to come? No, because I believe that he's going to be able to go out there and find guys that truly want to play for the Buffaloes in 2024. But the hard truth is you're not going to be able to keep a lot of guys in Boulder, Colorado. Because one thing we know about the Buffaloes program, they don't have the money that Ohio State has, Clemson has, Alabama has, Georgia, Texas, all those schools have. And you're also dealing with the fact that when it gets cold in Boulder, it gets cold in Boulder. And not a lot of players are wanting to leave sunny California, sunny Florida, or the more preferred climate of the South to go to Colorado where when it snows, it snows. So I think that he's learning the growing pains of what it feels like to be a coach at the division one level. And that was today's edition of the unpopular opinion segment. Bold prediction time on a Wednesday. It feels like it's been quite a while since we've done a bold prediction that changes right here, right now. So here's my bold prediction for today. We've talked about this a number of times the past few days, and I'm going to continue to talk about it right now. The decision that David Tepper decided to make to fire Frank Wright. Most people believe that it was the wrong decision to make. People like myself believes that it was the right decision to make. The reason why I feel as though Frank Wright needed to go was because you could tell that he really had no desire to coach. Bryce Young. That was pretty evident. Although he got up to the podium before the Texans played the Panthers and said that Bryce Young was the guy that we wanted all along, you could read through that and tell that Frank Wright wanted no parts of coaching Bryce Young because he could sense that Bryce wasn't going to be a good fit for what he wanted to run as far as the offense was concerned in Carolina. Frank Wright is the perfect, perfect outlier for what we're about to discuss in the bold prediction. Frank Reich spoke to the media after being fired and said that he believes that the Carolina Panthers job 
and his subsequent firing from the job would be his last and final chapter in the NFL. Bold prediction, I believe Frank Reich will be a head coach in the NFL again. And not because I want him to be, but because there's going to be some team out there that's going to look at Frank Reich and say, you know what? We believe that he was given a raw deal both times in Indianapolis and Carolina. So let's bring him into our fold and let's give him a more competent team to work with. And let's see, can he truly become the coach that a lot of people thought he was going to be in Indy and in Charlotte with the Panthers? That's what I believe is going to happen. Frank Wright's going to get another opportunity. I just don't know from whom yet. And that was today's bold prediction. We've arrived at the final portion of the show today. And before we dive into the final verdict, once again, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And as always, don't forget to follow the podcast channel. Don't forget to leave ratings and reviews. And most importantly, don't forget to tell family and friends about the amazing things that we are doing on our pod. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to dive into the final verdict for today. So this morning when I was doing the prep for the show today, I was trying to figure out where I was going to get today's final verdict from. Was I going to go to the tennis angle to get today's final verdict? Was I going to go to the NFL angle? I said no to both of those because I wanted to focus squarely upon the NBA. So last night, the Dallas Mavericks hosted the Houston Rockets and won the game 121 to 115 to prevent the Houston Rockets from advancing in the in-season tournament. And afterwards, during his media availability, Jason Kidd was asked about the connection with Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving for context. Last year, when Kyrie Irving was with the Dallas Mavericks, there seemed to be issues with cohesion between himself and Luka Doncic, so much so that it prompted the media to ask, would these two guys be able to ever share the floor at the same time? Last night in the press conference, Jason Kidd was asked a question about Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic, and he went on to basically say, you guys have failed to write anything positive about their partnership on the floor. But last season, when things didn't really work out good, you guys could not wait to write everything negative. And then he went on to speak about how the world is already negative now as it is, and people would be willing to read your positive stories if you would be willing to write them. And that led me to what I'm about to say right now. Jason Kidd was 100% accurate in his assessment of how everything is right now, not just in sports, but the world in general. If you've noticed, the world has become very, very negative. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that negativity sells, whether it's negativity on social media, negativity in sports, negativity in your city. It just seems as though more people tend to gravitate towards negativity. But anytime that something positive is going on, people rarely want to talk about it. Or when they do talk about it, you glance over it or gloss over it to get back to the negative. We all knew, especially those of us that are basketball fans die hard to the core, that at some point or another, the Luka Doncic-Kyrie Irving partnership was going to work out because both of those guys are very dominant scorers and Kyrie Irving may go down in NBA history as having the best handles that we've ever seen. We knew that it was going to work. It was just going to have to take time. Similar to what's going on right now in Carolina, Bryce Young will eventually work. It just needs time to develop. 
And I don't fault Jason Kidd at all for going off on the media for not reporting how much more better Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic has become as a pair. But once again, when you live in this world and everything else around you is negative, that's what people tend to gravitate towards. And I have no problem at all with Jason Kidd calling out the media for what they have lacked doing so far this season. I forgot to mention this at the top of the show today. I was going to have not one, but two final verdicts that I wanted to share with you guys today. So let's get into the second one. If you guys have noticed, there are a lot of people like myself that have gravitated towards hosting our own podcast. The reason why I decided to host my own podcast was because I was tired of all of the biases and all of the preconceived notions coming from a lot of the major players in the sports media landscape. And I'm pretty sure a lot of other small independent podcasters who cover sports felt the exact same way when they decided to venture out and start a podcast of their own. There has been this very, very interesting dichotomy between the more prominent sports media analysts and smaller podcasters like myself. Many of the national sports media types out there are very, very upset with people like myself because we've decided to venture out on our own and because we've gotten tired of the same stale narratives that has plagued sports media for the past 20 years now. At one point in time, I used to be someone that enjoyed debate shows. I used to be someone that enjoyed the first takes of the world, the Skip and Shannon Undisputed's of the world, first things first, whatever the case may be. But after a while, I got tired of those quote-unquote manufactured debates. And I was reading Straight Shooter, Stephen A. Smith's memoir, and he talked about how he wanted to get rid of Max Kellerman on first take because he wanted someone to come into the fold that would disagree with him more. And from that point forward, I just looked at sports media and I said to myself, how much of this BS is actually manufactured and how much of it is actually legitimately true at the end of the day? But so many of us have branched off and so many of us now have our own collective voices that is making people in the national conversation start to sweat because they realize that they don't have the same grasp, grasp, I should say, over a large amount of viewers. Now, granted, I'm not someone that has an audience like a Joe Rogan. I'm not someone that has an audience like a Bill Simmons a Josh Pate, whatever the case may be. I don't have that type of audience. I would love to get there, but I know it's going to have to take a lot of more work on my end to get there. Better, you know, articulation of the English language would be a great start. Anyway, I know it's going to have to take a lot of work on my end to get there. But there are so many podcasters that are sprouting up that it makes you wonder, where is the direction of sports media going to go in the future. I believe that we could be very well heading to a day where the national sports media types understand that they don't have the same type of control over the audience like they once used to, because you can go and get your sports news the way in which you want to now, because that's how popular podcasts have become. If you're someone that's a fan of a particular team, you can go and find a podcast based on that team that talks only about that team. If you're someone that likes tennis like myself, you can go and find you a tennis podcast. You don't have to listen to the analyst on tennis channel talk about tennis if they're not giving you what you want at the end of the day. So why do I bring all of that up? I bring that up because if you've noticed in the past few years, 
Anytime that you are someone that's a fan of sports and you voice your opinion, a lot of the sports analysts and a lot of the athletes will say that you have no business discussing sports because you've never played the sport at the highest level and you've never covered the sport at the highest level. I'll go out on a limb and say this, and I'm not trying to disrespect anyone, but if someone takes this as disrespect in the national sports media conversation, then, hey, I'm not apologizing. Most fans know a hell of a lot more about sports than a lot of the national types would be willing to give credit for. There are a lot of fans that can go toe-to-toe with a lot of the analysts on TV right now. But because you don't have a degree in mass communications or because you haven't been in the business 25 years or 30 years, a lot of those guys look at your opinion as null and void. Like, how in the hell can you tell me what's right and what's not, and I've been covering this sport longer than you've been alive? That's a lot of their pushback when you're someone that can discuss sports at the highest level. And that's the reason why they have a problem with people like myself, people who've decided to venture out and start their own podcast because they're realizing that they're losing a large portion of their audience to people like me because I'm going to cut through the BS because I want my audience to understand that although this podcast is imperfect, I'm going to deliver you the biggest stories from the world of sports in an unapologetic way, in an unapologetic way. Unapologetic way. Damn where it couldn't have come out any worse than it did anyway. And I'm also going to deliver you the biggest stories from the sports world objectively. I've told you guys on a number of occasions who I like in sports, but I've never let my fandom of a particular team, of a particular player, or of a particular coach get in the way of what I'm trying to tell you guys. And I pride myself on that because nowadays in sports talk, a lot of the guys and a lot of the ladies as well, they've lost their objectivity. They've lost their unbiasedness, if that's a word that I can use. So they're going to continue to keep coming after fans and people who talk about sports on podcasts because they'll claim that we know nothing about what we're discussing. When in all actuality, they can sense that we're starting to turn the tide. They can sense that turning it on ESPN, FS1, those are the old days. Everybody's starting to gravitate towards podcasts because that's something that you can take on the go. But hey, all things in life has to evolve. And sports talk is no different. And that's going to conclude today's edition of Sports Court. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me as always. We will be right back here again on Friday with another brand new episode of Sports Court where I will give you the What to Watch For segment as well as recap Thursday Night Football. And we're going to discuss all of the conference championship games that will be on tap for Friday as well as Saturday. All of that and more will be included on Friday's edition of the show. So until then, ladies and gentlemen, have a great Wednesday. Have an amazing Thursday. Stay safe. Take care. God bless. We are out.